Thank you, Clifford. Well, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Colossians chapter 3 uh, and verse 18. It'll be helpful for you to have that in front of you as we work down through it together. As you turn there, I want to begin this morning by asking you to think over your past week from this time last Sunday up through to today. Think of what you did on Monday morning, your breakfast, uh, how you filled your day. Think of the activities that made up Tuesday and Wednesday, whether it was work or rest time or eating time. Think of uh, your downtime when you were watching TV, your Bible reading time, prayer time, church. Think of all of the activities that went together uh, to make up your week. And if you were to put it all together, what percentage of your week would you say was taken up with secular activities, and what percentage was taken up by spiritual activities? We just find our terms. Secular means not connected with religious or spiritual matters. I just lifted that out of a dictionary. Spiritual means relating to religious belief and spiritual matters. What percentage of your week was taken up with secular activities and what percentage was taken up with spiritual activities? Now, as you're processing your thoughts, perhaps squirming a little bit as you think through your percentages, I want to question the question. What do you think of the question? Is it a good question? Is it a right way to think about our lives? to think of the percentage of secular things and the percentage of spiritual things. Well, let's question the question for a moment. The question assumes that there are parts of our lives that are not connected in any real way to our relationship with God. That there are secular activities that don't really have much to do with God at all, that God isn't interested in. I'll be honest with you, I don't think it's a good question that I've opened with. Because it is not the way the Bible teaches us to think about our lives. Why did you ask it then? To get you to think. A question that draws such a sharp distinction between secular things in our lives and spiritual things in our lives misunderstands the basic teaching of the Lordship of Christ over all of life. And that is what our passage is all about this morning. The biblical answer to the question, what percentage of your week was secular and what percentage was spiritual, the biblical answer is actually kind of, well, 100% of my activities were spiritual. And that's because everything we do as Christians is in one way or another to always be done under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. What marks us out as Christians in this world of non-Christians is we are people who have a Lord. And the Lordship of Jesus Christ is to shape every area of our lives. In our passage this morning, the weight of that truth falls in chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. Look there with me. Whatever you do, Work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. 
you're serving the Lord Christ. Over the past few weeks, Paul, in this letter to the Colossians, has been teaching these young believers what it means to live your life when Jesus is Lord over all. He's writing to a small church planted in a pagan city full of non-Christians, and he's trying to help them to figure out what it means that Jesus is Lord and how that makes them different from the people who do not confess Jesus as Lord. He summarized this life in chapter 3, verse 12, as the life where Christ is all and is in all. In chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, he was helping the Colossians see what it, what it looks like to, to have Jesus Lord of your thoughts. Then in verses 5 to 12 of chapter 3, what it looks like to have Jesus as Lord over your character when you're trying to not just live your own way, but you're actually trying to see your whole character be conformed to the Lordship of Christ. Then, in the next section, he looked at how we do community life in the local church from verses 12 to 17. What it looks like to have Jesus as Lord of the local church. And now this morning, he turns very practically to look at what it means to have Jesus as Lord over your family life and your work life. What it means to have Jesus as Lord in your personal life. So in short, this morning's passage is about how to live a mature Christian life at home and at work under the Lordship of Christ. Let's get straight into it. First, Paul speaks to the Lordship of Christ over family life in verses 18 to 21. First, in verse 18, he speaks a word to the wives. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. This is a call for wives to recognize and live in step with the order God established when he first created man and woman. What do we mean by the order God established when he created the first man and woman. Well, there is so much we could say about this. But I want to summarize the Bible's teaching on the relations of men and women in the Bible by saying there are two building blocks we need to have firmly in place to understand the ordering of male and female roles in the Bible. The first building block is this, from Genesis 1:27. We must know for sure and without doubt that men and women are created equally as image bearers of God. That's where we start in our thinking about male and female ordering of relations in our world under the Lordship of Christ. In Genesis 1.27, we read, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Two human kinds, the male kind and the female kind. And we never want to flatten out those distinctions to say, well, they're just exactly the same. No, God created male kinds and female kinds. He gave males a certain role, females a certain role. And when we order our lives in the way God has established them and set them up to be ordered, we will flourish. We will flourish as men. We will flourish as women. 
We don't just eradicate and eliminate those distinctions as our culture is wont to do. We, we, we say, yeah, I want to think through what it means for me to be a man and not a woman, and what it means for you if you're a woman to be a woman and not a man. We need to think carefully about these things. Genesis 1.27, this creation of male and female in the image of God, teaches us that there is an equality of personhood and an equality of value shared between men and women. Both the male and female humans in Genesis are set apart from the rest of creation as image bearers of God. This calls for mutual respect, a recognizing of worth and dignity between men and women. There's no room, you've heard me say this before, there's no room for the schoolyard chant, boys are better than girls, or girls are better than boys, (laughs) because that's not true. So the first building block you want to have placed when you think of male and female relations in the Bible is this, men and women are created equally as image bearers of God, equal in personhood, in value, and dignity. The second building block that you need to have in place then is this. God gave the man and the woman complementary roles in the project of living life under his lordship. Where Genesis 1 teaches male and female equality, Genesis 2 teaches that God has made the male the leader of the family who bears primary responsibility for leading the couple in a God-glorifying direction. The woman is created to help and support the man to lead the couple in a God-glorifying direction. We see this in so many ways in the narrative in Genesis. First, in that Adam was created first, and then Eve was created out of Adam. God could easily have just made two lumps of Dust breathed life into them both separately and said, here's your male and female. But no, he orders it because he wants to communicate an order, a firstness, a leading role to the man. And the woman is made out of the man. The second way this male leadership is communicated is that Adam, the man, was given the moral instructions for how the couple were to live and honor God. I think it's assumed that he was to pass them on to his wife. Third, we're told that Eve directly was created as a helper fit for the man. And don't see that as in any way a denial of value, because that word helper used for the woman is used continually in Scripture of God. God is the helper of His people. Fourthly, when the couple sinned, God came first to speak to Adam and to hold him to account for the moral failure of the couple. Adam, where are you? An American pastor, Ray Ortland, has very helpfully explained this teaching, saying, in the partnership of two spiritually equal human beings, man and woman, man bears the primary responsibility to lead the partnership in a God-glorifying direction. The man is to love his wife by accepting the primary responsibility for making their partnership a platform displaying God's glory. And the woman is to love her husband by supporting him in that godly undertaking. These rules are rooted in creation order. They are not just culturally specific, and they are to be lived out in the ordering of our family lives and in the ordering of our spiritual family lives in the church. That looks like male elders, 
bearing the responsibility to lead the family forward in a Godward direction. That looks in homes like the husband bearing the primary responsibility to lead the family in a God-glorifying direction. And of course, the Apostle Paul in the pastoral epistle says, if a man is not able to give a lead in his own household, how could he ever give a lead in the household of God? So in light of all of this, I give you a big loop around there of the biblical theology of man and women relations in Scripture so that you can get why Paul would start speaking of the lordship of Christ in the home by saying, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. This is how you live as a wife under the lordship of Christ. You submit to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. So straight away, we've got to establish clearly the meaning of this word submit. We don't want to stumble over it. Let's think first of what it's not. It's certainly not an admission of inferiority. God has created men and women equal as his image bears, as we've established. It is not having no say or contributing to decision-making in the home. Women have so much wisdom and strength that a man really needs that wisdom and strength as a husband to lead the couple in a Godward direction. He can't do it by himself. It's not a mindless following your husband without asking questions. Well, what is it then? Submission to your husband is a divine calling to recognize your husband as God's ordained leader of your home and a willing disposition to endorse and support his leadership. It's to see him become everything God has created him to be as a man, not to try to take his place, and reverse the creation order. You're to trust your husband, to pray for him, to encourage him, to get behind him, to love him. What frees you to do this? Well, not primarily because of the character of your husband, but primarily because it's Christ who asks this of you. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Are there limits to this call to submit? Yes, there are. If a husband calls for a wife to do something clearly contrary to God's will, she should not submit out of her primary allegiance to her Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, wives, Christ is your perfect example of one who was both equal with God and one who willingly submitted to the Father's headship in the economy of salvation. One who was God, and yet who in John 13 stooped down to wash his disciples' feet. What a calling you have to reflect the beauty of Christ in the way you love and support your husband. For those who are not wives this morning, and you might be thinking, well, this doesn't apply to me. Well, this actually teaches us how we should think about marriage. That if it was to come our way one day, or as we look on at what's going on in our society, here is the Bible's teaching on how we bring our marriages under the lordship of Christ. There are people who, when I've been preaching at weddings and I've used the word submit, I've seen people literally go, he just said wives should submit to their husbands. Honestly, I've seen people draw in breath as they're shocked that that language would be used in this modern age. And yet I think the equality and complementarity of Scripture is one of the most beautiful pictures in all of morality of a 
husband reflecting Christ, a wife reflecting the church, demonstrating not competitiveness, but complementarity as they live and move their lives and their families in a Godward direction. So there's the word to the wives. Now we see in verse 19 a word to the husbands. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. God's calling for a husband is to lead his wife by loving her and treating her with gentleness and respect. This is a lovely companion to the call for a woman to a wife to submit to her husband. Because the wife then straight away is called to love his wife, which means love her and give yourself up for her, submit un, put yourself under her willingly to lift her up. In Ephesians 5, Paul gives more instructions saying that husbands are told to see Christ as their model for how they're to love their wives. We read in verse 25 of Ephesians 5, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and give himself up for her that he might sanctify her. Husbands are called to love their wives sacrificially to see them grow and mature in Christ. Husbands here this morning, listen to this and hear it loud and clear. Husbands bear a unique responsibility for the moral and spiritual growth of their wives. Think of all the ways Christ has loved you, husband, and seek to love your wife in the way you've been loved by Christ. You lead by submitting yourself to God's call to be a servant, to see your wife grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. You are your primary wife's pastor. One way to get this wrong is by being harsh with your wife. That's the word that the Apostle Paul uses here. Man, be very careful here with your words your expectations, and the unspoken ways you might put your wife under pressure. You want to be a husband living your life under the lordship of Christ, seeking to reflect Christ. That means being loving, gracious, and kind, as Jesus is loving, gracious, and kind. One of the easiest things to do the longer your marriage is to start to take your wife for granted. Remember, you bear a unique responsibility to lead your wife in a God-glorifying direction. Try to not lose your vision for this, your primary pastoral charge. There are two ways to lead sheep. You can go behind them and drive them, or you can walk out in front of them, seeing that the sheep have learned to trust you enough to follow with confidence. A wife will not usually have any problem submitting to a husband who wants to give a strong lead to the family in a God-glorifying direction. In fact, I believe that we are wired this way. Women long for a leader that they can trust and follow. So men who set the tone of godliness in the home and in the congregation... Let's set a tone of godliness in this area of our lives. For those of you who are not husbands, you're looking on and saying, but how does this apply to me? Again, maybe one day you will be a husband, or at least this is how you're to think about marriage under the lordship of Christ. So we seek to support marriages and encourage them and build into them and not create a system where every single night of the week 
the husband or wife or the family are broken apart. So that's a word to husbands. Just stepping back for a moment, husbands and wives, you're sitting there beside each other, you may be feeling the heat. I wish you were more like that, or I wish you were more like that. Maybe you need a conversation. Just over dinner, after dinner over church, just sit down and say, look, I'm sorry if I've not been doing that well. I'm sorry, in fact, I bear responsibility for the fact that I've not been doing that well, but I want to do it more. How can we do this? Maybe a spiritual conversation like that could really help you as you continue to seek to move your relationship in a God-glorifying direction. Now move on to a word to children. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Notice how even this simple instruction to the children is grounded in living their lives under the lordship of Jesus. I think it's seven times in these nine verses we see the word Lord or Master applied to Jesus. It's clearly about bringing our whole lives under the lordship of Christ. Any children here this morning listening in or who will be listening on later, the way you honor and respect your parents is by seeking to Worship God in the way you respect them. It pleases the Lord when he sees you respecting and obeying the instructions of your parents. So if you are here and you're a child this morning and you're thinking about this, you don't just obey mom and dad for the sake of mom and dad, though that's important. You obey because as a young follower of Christ, if you are a follower of Christ, you want to live your life under the lordship of Christ. And that reaches into every area of your life. There are limitations again. If your parents were to call you to do something contrary to God's will, if they were to call for something harmful or abusive, you're not expected to obey, but you're to look for help and support in such a situation. But the Lordship of Christ even reaches down to how you kids respect the authority of your parents and how they're over you in the Lord. Now in verse 21, Paul gives a word finally to fathers. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Though addressed to fathers specifically because they bear the primary responsibility for shepherding the family, this instruction does also apply to both parents. It's addressed to fathers, you know, as you give a lead to this, but it's not as if the wife's like checking out and saying, okay, dad, over to you. No, the NIV actually has a footnote that says parents in it to help us reflect that reality. So here's a word to parents but to fathers as they give a lead. Do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Provoke is a tricky word to translate uh, from the original. The message translation actually paraphrases this very nicely. Um, Eugene Peterson uh, reflected and commented and said, parents, don't come down too hard on your children or you'll crush their spirits. I think that's really helpful, getting the spirit of what the Apostle Paul is teaching here. Parents, let's not press our children too hard. Let's not weigh them down with heavy expectations. Think again of how your heavenly Father gently and patiently parents you and strive to be that kind of parent. Our job as parents is to encourage our children. Encourage, that means put courage into them. In a scary world, dads lead the way. Don't drain courage out of them by always making them feel like they're letting you down or not getting or or getting in your way. It's easy when you have young children, especially, to act as if you're just children are always in the way. What does that communicate to them? 
Let's be intentional about striving to put courage into our children. This means praying for them, reading the Bible with them, having family devotions together uh, where appropriate. And remember always, as you seek to bring your children up in the fear and respect of the Lord, ultimately, it's really important to remember that their salvation does not depend on our parenting performance. God can save our children. You know the saying, you can take a horse to the water, but you can't make a drink. (laughs) We can lead our children to the water of life. We cannot force them to drink. And so we pray And we strive to be faithful in bringing them to the water of life. And this starts when they're little babies. Little tiny babies. You hold that baby in your arm and you pray for them. I think it's lovely when we think of some of the babies that have been born recently into the fellowship. And and just knowing how the the, the various members of the church are praying for these little children. We think of little uh, Matteo who was with us this morning clapping his hands during worship. And I, I don't mind, by the way, when children make noise in the first part of the service. In fact, it's part of, of our praise and, and offering on to the Lord. I think it's great to so never be stressed about that. We think of little Arthur Manley who was in hospital a week ago and it was just lovely to hear the prayers and encouragements of his church family around him as we sought to encourage Jason and Jenna. So we pray for our children and we trust the Lord to raise them and to save them and to bring them to himself. And we never stop praying for our kids. Your children will get excited about what you're excited about. They will catch the atmosphere in your home. And so get excited about the right things. World missions, prayer, the local church. They'll catch that. So there is Paul's word on how we see our family lives and home lives brought under the lordship of Christ. But second then, Paul speaks of how we see us bring our whole work lives under the lordship of Christ. And that's in the next part of the passage from verse 22 down to chapter 4, verse 1. And I'll move a little more quickly here. In verse 22, Paul addresses a group called bond servants. NIV translate the Greek word behind this as slaves. We need to think about this for a wee moment. Bond servants were an integral part of the social and economic world of the first century. Estimates vary widely, but historians reckon that about one-third of the people in cities like Colossae would have served in this role. They would have been slaves, bond servants. Their lot in life varied widely. Some bond servants worked in awful conditions, some in very good conditions and were entrusted with running whole households. We're not so much to compare bond servants or slaves in Scripture with the slavery of the 19th century so prevalent in the West, but I think we're more generally to think of them more as servants and butlers, the sort you'd see in Downton Abbey. Now, that is not a perfect comparison, so don't press me on it. Instead of challenging the institution, which was not going to disappear anytime soon soon in the Roman Empire, Paul instead writes to those who are working as bond servants, who've become Christians, to help them think about how they're to live and serve in their lot under the Lordship of Christ. And though imperfect, Perhaps the most suited way to imply the instructions here 
to the bondservants is for us to apply it in our world of employee and boss relationships to reflect on our lives at work. Paul says in verses 22 and 24 that this group of servants are to do the work that is assigned to them by their bosses, not just when the boss's eye is on them, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now, I used to work in Ulster Bank, and I remember when the boss wasn't there. Everyone just relaxed that little bit. And then the boss was there, and you all tightened up a wee bit. That's the kind of atmosphere that Paul's getting at here. He's saying you're not really supposed to just work when the boss is watching and then whenever he's not watching or she's not watching, you just slack off. No, you're actually to work with a bigger vision. Verse 23, he outlines that vision. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. What a vision that was giving for work to the bond servants. Remember, you're not just serving your earthly man. Master, you're serving the Lord, even in this. And Paul and God speaking through his word today is saying to us in all your work, whatever form it takes over the next week, see through your earthly overseers and see the one who is above the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 24, we're told he's the one you're really to be working for. And this can give, as I said, so much meaning to our work. The Lord Jesus wants me to offer my work to him, doing it in a manner which honors him. We are to work hard to demonstrate the character of the kingdom. And in this way, all our work becomes a meaningful offer of worship. It's all spiritual when it's dedicated to the Lord. This attitude can change everything. We don't just work through our secular work to get to the spiritual stuff. We offer our work as worship. You know, there's a Hebrew word, avodah, in the Old Testament. It literally means work, worship, and service. The same word for work and worship. In Hebrew, there's actually no direct word for spiritual because all of life was spiritual. So in the great narrative of the Exodus, Pharaoh said, they work for me. They worship me. They're under my lordship. And God said, no, no, no. Pharaoh, you're going to have to learn a lesson. They worship me. This attitude, knowing that we work onto the Lord in all of our work, can free us from two mistakes. It frees us first from sloppiness in our work and a sense of meaninglessness in it. But it can also free you from working too hard and putting yourself under loads of pressure out of fear of man. The Lord Jesus Christ is a good master. He doesn't want us always feeling like we're driven and under pressure and about to burn out. That pressure you feel, does it really come from him? And this lordship of Christ, this call to work onto him, extends into every area of life. So whether it's a stay-at-home mom, or it's keeping your house in order, whether it's raising a family, whether it's your work in a local shop, as Patty says, stacking shelves for Jesus, whether it's your work as a cleaner, or in school, or volunteer work, or work in a church, or in a hospital, a school setting, or as an engineer, or as a joiner, or as a brickie, in a bank, in your uni work, mechanic work, whatever it is, every day you can make that work your worship. You can dedicate your work to the Lord and seek to work in a way that honors Him. Doing your work well is one thing, but doing it with Christ-like character is another. Your vision 
is to work with Christ-like character. So Paul says, remember even, you're not ultimately working for your earthly salary. He says, look beyond to the reward you'll receive from your true Lord, the Lord Jesus. See that in verse 24? You'll receive from the Lord your inheritance as a reward. He says, think of that reward. And in verse 25, warns them of the wages of sin that will come when we just work for ourselves and there will be no partiality favoring masters, servants, one way or another. We will all be scrutinized for the way we have lived our lives and our only hope in that day will be Christ. Well then, finally, we see a word in 4.1 to bosses. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So, for the bosses, how should a Christian boss treat his or her staff under them? Well, justly and fairly, always keeping in mind that those in positions of responsibility are also working under a higher authority. So, How are you viewing the various activities that stretch out ahead of you this week? I asked you at the beginning to look back over your week and to think through all the activities that made up your week. I asked you what what percentage would be secular and what percentage would be spiritual. Well, as you look out then into the week ahead, what are your percentages? Rather than various specific do's and don'ts of application, I think this passage behind it It commands an attitude, a way to think about life. A way to think that says, here's what makes me different from all the people in my workplace who are not Christian. I have a Lord. I have a Lord who wants me to work in a certain manner. I have a Lord who wants me to keep my eyes on a certain reward. I have a Lord who is a good, good master. He wants me to flourish as a man to flourish as a woman, to live in all that I do for the praise of his glory. So remind yourself this week, throughout the day, everything I do is spiritual. Everything I do is under the governance of the Lord. I heard someone say once, there's nothing secular except sin. We work onto the Lord. We rest onto the Lord. We drive our cars onto the Lord. We parent onto the Lord. We even live out our singleness onto the Lord. Let's not privatize any area of our lives as if there's neutral ground where God is not interested. The Lordship of Christ extends to every single part of your life. Let me close with the words of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, that great Baptist pastor. In a sermon he preached in 1874, he challenged this thinking of a secular spiritual divide in life. Spurgeon writes, and with this I close, to a man who lives unto God or to a woman who lives unto God, nothing is secular. Everything is spiritual. This person puts on their workday garment and it is like a religious robe to him. They sit down to eat their meal and they see it as a kind of sacrament. They go forth to their labor and therein exercises the office of the priesthood. Their breath is like incense and their lives are like a sacrifice offered unto the Lord. They sleep on the bosom of God. They live and move in the divine presence. 
to draw a hard and fast line and say, this is secular and this is spiritual, is to my mind diametrically opposed to the teaching of Christ and the spirit of the gospel. So, great Vic, this week, whatever you do, whether you eat, sleep, or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, it is such a joy to think on how the lordship of Christ extends to every area of our lives. When we think about that, we we want, Father, every area of our lives to reflect the fact that we have a Lord. The sovereignty of the self is such an infectious disease in our culture at the moment, and it can creep into our own hearts and minds. We can start to think that we're Lord over our rest time, so we can watch whatever we want on TV, and as long as we want. You're Lord over our rest time. You're Lord over our family time. You're Lord over our singleness. You're Lord over our work lives, over how we love our wives and our children, or how wives love their husbands. You're sovereign over how single people think of their singleness and interact with their housemates or their families or their friends. You're Lord of all, or as one has said, you're not Lord at all. And so we pray this morning that each one of us again would think this morning and would go out of here with that attitude, just saying afresh, Father, help me to bring my whole life, every area, under the Lordship of Christ, so that whether it's doing dishes and stacking a dishwasher or whether it's chores that we don't find that enjoyable, help us in some way to try and turn even our most boring duties, help us to offer them in some way as meaningful offerings of work unto you. For Lord, that changes everything. And so we thank you for the dignity and value that you've given us for the shape that our lives are to take because they are lives where we flourish when we bring our lives under the Lordship of Christ. And we pray that you'd help us to do that more and more. And if there's anyone here this morning and they're not a Christian or even some of the young people listening this morning were thinking, I don't know if I've brought my whole Lordship or my life under the Lordship of Christ. I pray that even this morning they would just see Jesus as Lord as an umbrella and just say, I want to be under that umbrella. Oh Lord, help us all with this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, well done. You've made it through the warmth. Hopefully you've been able to focus and concentrate. But let's close off by standing together now to sing, Jesus is Lord.
now may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.